0: Decode with young agamben and cute numina today we have a very exciting episode i know both internally we're very excited to tackle this book and it seems like a lot of people uh have an interest in this work as well um we're going to be reading and talking about marcel mouse's a general theory of magic today um which is a wonderful piece of early sociology and French structuralism that tackles probably one of the most complex problems in ethnography generally, which is the uh, universal cropping up of magical systems universally across primitive cultures and advanced cultures, so called magical cultures. Um, So before we begin, um, we should probably have a quick rundown on Marcel Mauss himself. Um, He wrote a phenomenal book slash essay called The Gift, um, in which he studies the sociological, uh, you know, machinations of gift giving. And me personally, I've always found Mauss extremely interesting for a lot of reasons. I would say that core ones are uh, he, if, if, you, if you didn't know this, he is the uh, nephew and the disciple of Emile Durkheim, the father of French sociology. So what we're really talking about here is the founding fathers of sociology, especially this French sociology, right? And secondly, we have this, you can either argue it is structuralism, or you can argue, argue maybe it's post-structuralism simply because we have this sort of either concurrent or prior to desolcier's wonderful essay a general course in linguistics in which he kind of draws what structuralism is within a uh, you know psycholinguistic framework um cute uh what's your experience with marcel mouse and um how do you approach the school of sociology
1: so my the The only thing that I've really read from Marcel, besides just being acquainted acquainted with, you know, like, obviously, like, around art circles, people talk about him, mm-hmm. um, is the gift book that you already brought up. I don't know how big it is. It's pretty short. A lot of his stuff i I, I seen is, like, pretty, like, yes. small, yeah. but, like, you know, dense and, like, critical. Um, and so that's the, my only real familiarity with his work. Um but it's it's cool that you bring up the whole idea of you know this like structuralism or post structuralism um that you know is embodied in a lot of his works because it's it's almost like he's cataloging in a way he's doing he's part of the structuralist project in terms of like systematizing um certain like you mentioned like prim- primitive like systems um primitive seems kind of pejorative but I'll I'll use it just for the sake of the conversation um you know it's kind of like baudrillard's you know there are no primitive um societies but i think the way that he writes about it is really like systematic almost like almost akin to um how would i say like i wouldn't say Kantian but just kind of like that tradition of like critical philosophy um and then in terms of like how i understood the book I or the essay I understood it as a how would you say like a not like an overarching complete index of magic but it like you know it's kind of like so let's say self-titled book it's kind of like a general theory it's kind of like you know kind of like this is kind of like a starting point if I were to tell someone like because I'm not very familiar with magic or the occult or anything like that Mm -hmm. Um, compared to you, I I think that you have a really strong interest in these themes. Um, but I would say this is
0: like a great book to start in my personal experience. I absolutely agree. I I think, uh, what's great about mouse and magic is obviously we, we both have some interest in magic and I especially have, you know, a hobby of reading about different historical, uh, magical movements and so on and so forth. And what I love about mouse and what he really tried to accomplish here. And we'll talk later if he really does accomplish that. But I admire the ambition of what he's trying to do here, which is to completely demystify these, uh, you know, kind of discrete systems of magic into a general systems theory of what magic is. Meaning that it's not just the localized sort of ethnographic study of certain magical traditions, it is the comparative study of magic as a real thing and how it functions constructively in a society. And so I think what's important when we bring up structuralism, on the one hand, you have the most important structuralist probably of you know, French sociological and ethnographic history, which is Claude Levi Strauss. And obviously he has such theories as bricolage, which leads into Derrida's deconstructionist theories, so on and so forth. But we need to understand that Levi Strauss is consummating in a certain way what Maus is doing now. Maus and Durkheim are really the first people to systematize something like sociological phenomenon and break them down into the structural mechanisms that make them up. And what I mean by that is when we talk about structuralism, we're talking about a movement of thought that is deadly serious about this gap between the signifier and what is signified which in structuralism, these two are completely different things. But the way that they work is structuralism claims in a synch- synchronic manner, which means that they operate within the discrete systems that give them their meaning by difference of between the words, right? So structuralists only see language and systems of representation as capable of having meaning, in their own self-referential system, right? Now this is breaking away from prior linguistic and sociological theory that understood meaning to be diachronic, meaning that it it basically meaning changes with time and its words simply change by their use over time and the difference, the trace of difference that that creates. So structuralism, the synchronic nature of structuralism is really coming into contact here with, with mouse, because this is a highly synchronic general theory. Because what he's doing is he's taking the magical systems of the Cherokee, of primitive African tribes, of primitive Southeastern tribes, and he's making the argument that these are self-referential closed systems that have their meaning, yes, in this structure, but the general structure is, you know, obviously infrastructurally similar in every single tradition. Now we'll get into a conversation about what he means by magic and what his actual feelings about that are. And we'll just preface that by saying that basically Mouse, at the end of the day reduces magic to a universal substance. This, this sort of thing that's always in the background of what he calls mana, which is simply this, this some, some force of the universe. And I personally believe he had to do this, and this is very, uh, this is very common in structuralism, to find some sort of tr- trans- signifier that then structures all other systems. And so f- for Mouse, this mystical idea of mana is the core centrifugal force for all magical systems. If they may be different, they are different only insofar as they express mana differently or use mana differently. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that you're very apt in terms of, um, you know, describing it in terms of this, like, it's not comparative. It's not, it's not comparative in the sense that it's, you know, different quote unquote magical Mm -hmm. system, magical systems um, from society to society. It's almost like it gave me really strong, like Jungian vibes in terms of like an archetypal archetypal archetypical system of magic. So mm-hmm. at its core, like you mentioned, you know, he does create this substance that which he um, describes or names aptly M- mana, and then describes that as like this, um, like this, this categorical, um, how would you say like this, the structure, the structure of thought and it's, in a way, it's not. It's not like it's. I wouldn't want to say it's pre-philosophical, but it's not captured by like philosophy itself. It's almost like this uh, generative anthropology, kind of almost akin to like the um, scapegoat mechanism in Girard. So it's just kind of like an, a, a system of behavior that's like generative as as human anthropology. It, it's something that emerges within sociological systems.
0: Absolutely. I think that's very apt um, to sort of bring up um, to bring that up because it really is. Uh, it really is. Sorry, what did you say? What did you say? What was the first part that you saw? Sorry, we'll have to edit that out. But Yeah, no, you're fine. First...
1: So it's just, uh, you know, resonating with the whole notion of, oh. you know, this ma- mana as, as like a structural category as this. Yeah this, um, like, you know, I mentioned, um, what is his name? I just forgot it. (laughs) Gerard's, uh, Gerard's uh, scapegoat mechanism.
0: Yeah. Sorry. it slipped my mind, but I think you're very apt to bring up both Jung and Gerard here because they're very much working in conjunction with similar projects here. Now Gerard is later, obviously. And for him, it's all about how are systems of violence universalized under general theory, such as the scapegoat mechanism, such as sacrifice, so on and so forth, right? And Jung, I think, is very much looking for a structural study of symbols, of psychological symbols, right? And I think this project, generally, the structural project is very much of the 20th century. It's very much of that bent. But what we need to understand when we're talking about Mouse here is how revolutionary this was at its time. We're talking about this is this is almost pre, or I would say prophesizing the full high structuralist movement that will come later. But it it, it really takes what structuralism's core um, principles are and applies them in a way that will basically set the map for and ethnographic studies throughout the 20th century. The other thing I want to say is, it it reminds me a lot of other movements in even the occult or in uh, the esoteric world at this time, which for instance, concurrent to this is Rudolf Steiner coming up with a theory of studying religions and of studying esoteric traditions, which he calls anthroposophy, which is very much a structuralist at its core, means of reading scripture from around the world while generalizing it into a uh, meta-theoretical interpretation of how we should read these in the first place. And that's what Mouse is doing here when he's looking at the localized instances of magic and is creating something that can be cross-applied to any theory of magic. What he's trying to do is to universalize what magic is in the first point so that we can really understand outside of how mystical and weird it is, how it actually is functioning and what we can determine are the core, you know, mechanisms that create this functioning. Yeah, no, I
1: definitely agree. And I think when you mention, you know, the kind of like the tradition or the way the structure of thought in the 20th century. you know it's it's this, you know it's modernity at its in a way in it, at its peak so you have a lot of you know these systematizations of uh you know economics as a science um uh political science you know you you see these movements of thought in terms of i think how Gilles Deleuze describes it like you know when he describes as uh what is it called cartography so it's kind of like mapping out these these systems, these structures, um, and like you mentioned, it's kind of like creating, creating these universal structures that apply cro- uh, cross sociologic, uh, cross sociological across different cultural and sociological um, subdivisions, and at least particularly with like magic, you're you're right. I don't think that there is something similar to this that I've come across in terms of like cataloging. And actually, you know, putting in the work to kind of create like a science of magic.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's uh, really situates situates us well in what's going on here with Mouse in terms of where the the sort of approach that he's taking and the stakes of this argument are very important at this turn uh, into the twentieth century. Um, and I think what we should do now is just really sink our teeth in. And let's start by saying, what is magic, right? And uh, I'll start by kind of going through uh, what Mouse is using as sources here for his description of magic. And there's two very important figures here. First, there's E.B. Taylor, Taylor with his second volume of Primitive Cultures. Uh, which is a fabulous book that's kind of a pre-French sociological method survey of uh, what they, you know, deem primitive culture. But also, even more importantly, is, uh, is uh, J.G. Frazier's uh, work. And he's obviously a, if, if you haven't heard of him, you should really read The Golden Bow, which is a fabulous book on the history of magic and sort of the occult symbolism, mostly in Great Britain at that era. So to start, we have from, from E.B. Taylor, a definition of a specific kind of magic that Marcel Mouse is going to use and just say this is magic in many ways. And for E.B. Taylor, he has, he has this definition for what he calls sympathetic magic. And I'll quote Mouse here. This term covers those magical rights which follow the so-called laws of sympathy. Like produces like, contact results in contagion. The image produces the object itself, a part is seen to be same as the whole. Taylor's main aim was to show that these rights played a role in the system of survivals. And so what we have here, sympathetic magic, in, in many ways is predicting if, if, you're one, if you're like us and you have uh, an interest in Nick Land, what magic represents is a primitive idea of meme, meme contagion or mimetic contagion that through the use of these things that are that are sympathetic or like each other, even though you can't see how much they're like each other, say, at first glance, by moving, say, one piece of the puzzle, whether that be linguistic or symbol, you're creating a change in another part of that system, right? And so what we have here is a self-generative change in the external world based on changes within the interior framework. Of the system of symbols itself, um, Fraser kind of continues on to this, which I think is very important. And he says, "Magical actions are those which are destined to produce special effects through the application of two laws of sympathetic magic: the law of similarity and the law of contigu- contiguity." He formulates these in the following way: "Like produces like. Objects which have been in contact, but like ceased to be." continue to act on each other at a distance after the physical contact has been severed. One might add as a corollary, the part is to the whole as the images to the represented object. So what we have here is the core idea at the center of magic that anyone will tell you is this idea that things, even if they're no longer touching each other, have some sort of connection causally to each other. And so magic actually works as this as this way of causality that is causal through synchronicity, meaning it's causal because all magic assumes that the microcosm is representative of the macrocosm and vice versa, meaning that changes on a microcosm instantaneously have an impact on the macrocosmic scale. And so that's why if you make, say, a change on the micro level, you can have a magical action sympathetically on other parts of that magical system because it is a simultaneous almost as above so below the saying goes
1: i have a note here uh, about you know that same passage um you mentioned as above so below and i couldn't stop thinking about like entanglement how this is it almost seems like there's like a mm-hmm. intuition of like entanglement within magic in terms of like it it almost seems like you know they're. They're causally entangled, but they're not, like, they're not, um, they're causally entangled, but they're not, like, you know, it's it's almost like this, like, Spinozan parallelism. So, it's not like mm-hmm. the things that of above are directly causing the things as below. It's that there's a sympathy, this parallel sympathy that occurred from the initial cause. So, although they come from the same almost like um, mirror it's almost like this mirroring but it's not like this one-to-one relationship Um, at least that's how i and i understood that particular passage um but i just i just thought it was interesting how it it has like some at least like pseudo-scientific connections to entanglement
0: yeah i think that's a really it really goes to the of magic and its universal complexity is that it seems to be some sort of uh, almost universal knowledge or some sort of uh, gnosis that has been constant throughout time that gives us access. I would almost call it pre-scientific knowledge. Most of the scientists of uh, modern The modern world including like Isaac Newton all of these people were occultists and they were basically proving things that they had learned in their esoteric circles or in their esoteric studies and what magic shows us here is it actually through sympathetic magic we begin to understand what will become a major part of post-world war physics which is the complex problem of quantum entanglement which is a predominant theory now that everything is connected to everything else at a quantum level, at almost a non-visible, almost like invisible level. And quantum entanglement is the scientific theory of what we're talking about here in sympathetic magic, this this mystical on on a certain level, but also functional relationship between different objects in the same micro and cosmic, or sorry, micro and macrocosmic systems.
1: And I, I want to just bring this up. I don't want to go into full detail for it because it comes up later on in the book. But in terms of like how this, you know, it's, this sympathetic magic, um, you know, it's, its importance in regards to ritual. Because it's it's ritual mm-hmm. in terms of like a material, you could almost describe it like a material science, like a, actually the material conditions which create certain affects. Um, but I want to just highlight its importance in the ritual not just as the material conditions but as the source of like the mimetic contagion so Mm -hmm. because the as above so below um you know uh you can motif that we keep referring to it's it's you know it's like there's material representations of something that is occurring at a meta level like a perennial sense of knowledge um exactly and you know it's a you know whatever to just bring up hume uh hume's <laughs> to bring up young's uh, notion of the collective unconscious the only way that we would have access to this to this knowledge you know to the these uh pre-scientific um intuitions is through some sort of collective consciousness some sort of way to right. be able to uncover
0: knowledge which is not that's not empirical absolutely and yeah it's It's very interesting that it comes to us in that way and it's a complete mystery. And we have to kind of get into very speculative ideas of where magic came from, that Mouse is kind of leading us to because what he's showing us is that magic is something like we're saying, that is universal universal and sympathetic to all cultures, including the most, what they would call primitive to what you might term a magical society in and of itself, which is just hyper advanced and has a complete scientific knowledge of these deep cosmic uh, truths that run the cosmos, so to speak. And the problem becomes, how did this get here? How did magic start? Is it something innate in the human? I I can't answer this question, but it's a question that we, we should be asking ourselves, especially one of the tribes he talks about is something I'm very interested in, which is the Dogon tribe in Africa. They basically live to this day in what would be modern day Mali in Africa, in the Sahel region of Africa. And they have one of the oldest cultures in existence And there was a great French ethnographer who went during Marcel Mauss's time and spent 50 years with this tribe. And this tribe let them in to their highest level of esoteric secrets. And what this tribe somehow had found out is they thought that all of this knowledge came from a star called Sirius B. And the odd mystery is that they knew everything about Sirius B, which also has a Sirius A and B that can't be seen with the naked eye. So somehow they claim this was given to them by beings from Sirius who dropped off this occult tradition into their framework from you know thousands of years ago but somehow all of their frameworks for scientific knowledge and you know magical existence is you know proved time and time again by the scientific community. And so the Dogon tribe really represents something very odd where we all have this this weird tradition of being handed down this, this very esoteric knowledge. For some of us, it's from God himself or from the angels or from some extraterrestrial beings, but for some reason, magic is a universal part of human knowledge and magic represents in a way a knowledge so advanced that it should just be considered techniques on the highest level. It should be considered some sort of the deepest language of cosmic existence itself, which must somehow be a universal version of knowledge that perhaps other beings or other people could have higher access to. So in many ways, it's interesting because Magic has always been an oral tradition up until basically Freemasonry, until it starts getting written down and very much, you know, tried to kept alive. But what's important is that magic is this initiatory process, right? It's a process in which in order to have access to the greatest secrets of magic, you are constantly tested by a hierarchy of beings, so to speak. Now, this is, you know, in in many times it's, you know, the, the oracle, right? It's working at an oracle or it's um, you know engaging with some sort of enlightened master of your tradition until you are allowed to access this knowledge. So in a way, magic proves itself to be inherently hierarchical, right? It's something that, that needs to be acquired only through access to a hierarchy, which is incredibly interesting when we think about how magic started, where it comes from, but also, how it continues, right? How does it keep cropping up in every culture despite not really being possible to cross contagion, uh, right? Like every primitive society in the world to explain how everybody has this secret knowledge.
1: Yeah, I was just going to mention it. it um, you know, the, obviously, this connection to perennialism. Um, but I mean, you, you brought it up in and pass in terms of the, you know, it's kind of like this intuitionism that even like, even like certain thinkers, like, like throughout history, like for example, like Spinoza, you know, the thing that's higher, even than reason for Spinoza is uh, intuition, like this higher form of intellect that goes back to, or is used in, in terms of understanding or relating back to God um, or substance as he names it. So it's, um, so it's this you know hyper intuition that it's even above reason it's it's and i feel like at least in contemporary philosophy or um intuition is seen as kind of like this derogatory or almost like this like mm-hmm. nasty faculty of the human mind like like buggy it doesn't work it's kind of like seen as lower than um you know than the rationalistic system systematic parts of um consciousness or intelligence um But even, like, for example, um, in the ancient Greek traditions, like, you know, the the initiations of the Pythagoreans and um, even, Mm -hmm. like, Plato. um, I think Plato was part of, I think it's the, I don't remember what it's called, but it's that they would go to, like, this um, place. They would drink Kaikion or Kikion Mm -hmm. or I, I don't know how to say it, but essentially it's, hallucinogenic barley or at least that's what that's what the theory is is that they would take some sort of psychedelic um in order to gain that you couldn't do it the first year you would have to come back and do it multiple times to then have access to Mm -hmm. these um higher order truths and you know even even you know plato as a pythagorean i i think that that's pretty you you can see the relation there in terms of uh, plato's thoughts but even for example plato in terms of um um you know w- why he put such an importance at, in terms of mathematics you know it's this it's this understanding of these higher forms of of the intellect that you know you only you only get once you get almost like you dispose of reason and and it's and it's funny that it's you know it's almost like this knowledge that we're regaining it's it's the cyclical understanding of knowledge that we that we that we get back
0: right And it's really interesting because you're talking about Plato and we know through Herodotus that Plato was initiated in uh, Egypt under a uh, mystical order of Anubis in which he takes this knowledge and kind of makes the Greek version of it. And same with Pythagoras was initiated under the Pyramid of Giza into this occult knowledge. Now, the interesting thing is the Egyptians also claimed to have gotten this knowledge from some other rites, earlier society. And so we have this endless trace into obscurity as to where this came from in the beginning but it seems to be tied to constant initiation into higher levels of intuition like you're saying and that's why rites and rituals are important because you can't in order to have the uh uh you have to have this experience this initiatory experience that puts you in this complete uh you know sympathetic intellectual and emotional place to receive a certain type of gnosis which is quite interesting to me at least when we're thinking about what intuition is right because it seems that intuition is not just something that uh, is, is safely kept obviously by these societies but seems to serve an explicit purpose in the order of not just the individual, but the world itself. And you see that the initiation into these orders of intellect or intuition, whatever you wanna call them, have a remarkable impact on not just world history since the dawn of time, but in the history of the development of modern societies. And so what we have is a uh, revival in the sense of magic because what we have is a better understanding of what magic is. So what we're talking about when we're talking about magic uh, with Marcel Mouse um, is very interesting. Uh, one part of it, this idea of a universal substance being manipulated, mana, if you ever practice magic, it's something that you see it happen enough to know that there's some something there, that there's some sort of substance that you're operating on that's creating these sympathetic relationships. Um, You know, I would urge anybody who's interested in magic to sort of test that out for yourself. Uh, Magic requires a lot of precision, a lot of syntactical precision, but also a a precision sense of mind and control over your will. And so when those things are in line, you sense that there's some sort of uh, continuity between yourself and a universal substance that is acting on you and also you acting on it in the macrocosmic, microcosmic level. Now, the interesting part about Marcel Mauss's hypothesis here is that there's another part to magic. And that part to magic is extremely interesting for modern society and to us. That's the point that magic has a psycholinguistic side to it in which magic is practiced inherently by those who stand on the outsides of society, especially uh, linguistic society, but also normal society of decency, of moral decency, of uh, communication, Um, all of the things that we rely on in a system, a societal system, has to be manipulated by people who practice magic. And that's why Marcel Mauss points out that magic works when it's used by somebody who is basically ostracized or at the edges of society. And this correlates perfectly with the idea uh, of sorcerers across time being people that live on the far outskirts of society and have some sort of shadowy control over it by their very uh, isolation, right? And it also makes sense that magic is almost always associated with witches and with women. And that happens to be because of the psycholinguistic minoritarian status of women in lots of societies which are predominantly religiously phallogocentric in, in their n- nature. And so the both sexuality and almost magical power of women has always been something that is inherently repressed under uh, most societies and religious re- regimes, which gives witches their sort of allure and their power to act on this universal substance, but to also act as an outsider on a society that has created the status of outsider for them. And so the second part to magic is greatly important when we're trying to understand why magic functions correctly and why these people practice magic, especially. Now, there's a great book called uh, The Structure of Magic that uses structuralist linguistics to basically show uh, how magic works. And they use Chomsky's uh, Grammatarian Linguistics In which they basically prove that through some basic, you know, you know, to, you know, it's proverbial uh, sorcery of words in many ways by screwing with the syntax and by using substitution and by manipulating the synchronic nature of people's meaning and understanding of that meaning magic works through this almost uh, sublingual hypnosis almost right it's changing words changing the structures of things changing the meaning of things slightly because of your knowledge of what those things are outside of their societal characteristics in order to use them functionally as simply sympathetic mimetic things
1: yeah i was just going to mention it it's you know it's again this motif of as above so below so um in terms of like that you know, it's this you know, you mentioned the psycholinguistic importance of of words in terms of the uh, in terms of words as no longer just like this, you know, structuring language, but as this as these mimetic entities. And um it's like yes, the the language refers to something. It it always refers to you know, to use structuralism, there's always a signifier to the uh to the sign, something that's being signified. Um but for example it's so it's it's really evident in in you know ritualistic magic in terms of you know there are uh there are you know when you cast a spell there there is a sense of you're you're using words in their regular sense but in something higher and there it's invoking something um which through this perennial knowledge um, refers to something else than the common day sense. So, um, you know, for example, like even when it comes to like material items um, like metals, you know, yeah, they're just material objects uh, like gold, silver, um, lead. But even those common day items, those those metals have reference to celestial beings and to um like universal intelligible concepts so you know it's 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 ascending this you know to use deleuze's language of like strata it's you're ascending these strata of signification um right when invoking magic
0: yeah and that reminds me of what i think is the greatest magical tradition in existence which is uh, Kabbalah in, you know, Jewish, m- Jewish mysticism. And what, what I'm getting at is that obviously magic it works somewhere. And what structuralism understood is this non-relation between the signifier and the signified meaning a magician can simply change the perception of meaning. If it understands the ability to substitute meanings in their systemic way. Right. And so what Kabbalah does is it restricts the play of signifier and signified to pure mathematical relations. In Kabbalah, you have tons of different openings for meaning, but they're all on lines of flight of exact numerical traces of representation. And so what Kabbalah gets at is a magical tradition that understands sympathy in the way that almost a computer would. The same way a computer creates sympathetic relations through numerical conditional statements through Kabbalah you're operating with that same exact functionality. And that's why Kabbalah is basically what was used in many oracles, uh, especially Rene on had a famous oracle he used using Kabbalah and where in which you basically ask a question, translate it and through tons of numbers. And then there's a system of, of you know, signs and signified substitution that get you your answer, right? And so what we have is this example of mathematics as a pure form of magic, as the highest level of technics in the universe, right? And that's why in many ways, our society is becoming increasingly magical because the relationships between things are becoming increasingly sympathetic.
1: I'm glad that you brought up Kabbalah because I think, I mean, obviously, I feel like we can't talk about some of this stuff without bringing like
0: CCRU, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> uh, what is it called? The, the pneumogram is in many ways the dark shadow of the Sephiroth, which is the, uh, you know, sort of tree of life in Kabbalah, has this shadow because that's what they're doing in the pneumogram when they're making it numerically short of whole numbers, right? You get to these decimal numbers that represent a, and there's a strain of magic that was uh, developed by Kenneth Grant in the 20th century that they're kind of ripping off called Typhonian magic and Typhon is the evil God in, uh, Egypt. He's sort of the behemoth beast, but that somehow has complete control over time. And so what Kenneth Grant, uh, started doing is these astral projections, um, into the dark Kabbalah in order to basically, uh, use, use the, uh, you know, core functional aspects of Jewish mysticism, but in a, what we'll call black magic way. And that, that gets us to a very interesting point that mouse reaches. And that's very important to think about when we're thinking about magic, which is these distinctions between black magic and white magic or right-hand path and left-hand path magic. Now, traditionally black magic are those things that we would consider sorcery in which you're using it to basically constrain another person to hurt another person or to have an impact on the world that serves your interests, right? And white magic is inherently something that is exactly the opposite. It's something that is used for uh, helping other people and of reaching a higher pure, pure moral truth for yourself. The problem is, is that Anybody who studies magic will tell you after time, while this might be helpful for some to understand the moral implications of magic, the way that magic works is it's always inherently tied to the singularity that is using it. In other words, there's no such thing as a pure black magic and a white magic. Magic is inherently sympathetically tied to the person using it. Meaning I could be a morally corrupt person who is using white magic in a way that makes it black magic and vice versa if I have a white magic interest in using black magic to somehow counter that other deeper, greater black magic, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a black magician just because you used black magic. And so this leads to the, the incredibly complex multiplicity of moral connotations that come with magic and the complete inability we have to truly understand magic on any moral type of level. Because of its pre-moral, pre-Socratic, pre-scientific existence and use, we can't quite wrap our heads around what is moral or immoral about magic. And so what happens in religious traditions is the constraint and demonization of magic as somehow other to the church and inherently sorcerous or black magic in its very use. The complexity comes in when you realize that the church, especially through the Renaissance, the most important members of the church are implementing hermetic Kabbalah into the church itself. And now there's a lot of people that are burned the stake for this, you know, Giordano Bruno, and there's people that are very controversial like Ficino um, and others in, in the Renaissance. But it's important to realize that religion has an inherently contradictory relationship to magical practice. Which leads to its suppression across the world and its demonization of its practitioners. The so, pneumogram suffer
1: in a way, you know, religion is anti- antithetical, or at least not if not antithetical, definitely suppresses uh, the use of magic. And I, earlier in the ch- in the book, I'm not sure what chapter it was. I think it's either ch- two or chapter three. Um, but he mentions how magic. It's not that magic is subordinate to like these other fields. For example, he brings up alchemy, um, medicine, and you know these other these other fields. It's that magic, in a way, works through these fields. So, you know, the, the knowledge that magic brings is what sup, like supplies alchemy with you know the knowledge of um, like transubstant- transubstant- transubstantiation, transubstantiation, um, and similarly even magic is what fuels or gives an understanding of how to like heal through sympathy or um for example like when a surgeon is doing like surgery he gives an exact quote um, i don't think i can pull it up right away but um, how it's that understanding of sympathies that um you know it's it's this although you're causing like physical harm to the body for example um it's you know it's a it's a barbaric it's a barbaric practice but it's it's a healing practice so it's not You know, it's this moral, you mentioned this moral ambiguity. It's like, yeah, so when a surgeon cuts someone, it's like, you know, most people see that as like a detriment to the body, but it's not, it's not morally loaded. It's how you, it's the intention of the user. It's the
0: intention of that singularity. Exactly. I think that's a really great point that you brought up too, that we're not talking about magic as somehow you know, separate from science or philosophy or any of these things, actually, and this gets to the core of what Marcel Mauss's hypothesis of what magic is is. And I want to read this uh, just sort of uh, so that we have an understanding of what exactly we're talking about here. Um, the hypothesis has a much wider import. Magic, thus defined, becomes the earliest form of human thought. It must have once existed in its pure state. Mankind originally thought only in magical terms. The predominance of magical ritual in primitive cults and folklore provide, so it is thought, strong proof in the support of this argument. Moreover, it is maintained that these magical states of mind still exist among a few central Australian tribes whose totemic rites are purely magical in character. Magic is therefore the foundation of the whole mystical and scientific universe of primitive man. It is the first stage in the evolution of the human mind, which is determined or even conjectured. So what we have is like you're saying, it's not that magic is done away with when we're entering into the scientific territory into the empirical territory. In fact, magic paves the way for us to even have a level of scientific or uh, empirical thought because it is the almost pure pre-thought itself. It's thought as it purely exists in the world magically, which is that your thinking is just completely in tune with how you're interacting with nature. That thought has no abstract character at all. It's simply thought that exists purely in the world, which goes to this almost fall of man idea that's core to uh, uh, magic, which Fraser brings up in, in this sort of quote of you know once we were gods and we roamed the earth you know thinking magically so to speak and now we've become men who have to work with gods through sacrifice and rights in order to get that same level of functionality so in many considerations of magic it's almost as if magic is some sort of pre-thought that existed in almost like an Edenic version of of the pre-man of like adam kodman so to speak this is a uh, universal evolutionary step that begins with every uh, instantiation of society itself and becomes increasingly more abstract and less magical through the uh, like de-totemification of all of the symbols themselves.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think that, you know, you can kind of see, you can start kind of seeing these these notions of, for example, uh, we brought up earlier, like the definition of, you know, um, mouse brings up mana and how... You know, you know, you can see it, you can bring up the World of Warcraft analogy, right? It's that which animates <laughs> uh, your spells or whatever, but you can also see it as like, I want to say like, if if Deleuze and Guattari and this is just purely by analogy, I'm not trying to shoehorn their philosophy in here, but in, in a way it's like, if Deleuze and Guattari use a body without organs as... Uh, as like a metaphor for like how thought kind of animates itself like thought as this like um as a self-imminent system or self-immunitizing self-thinking thing you can think of mana as kind of like its own body without organs um but as a repertoire Mm -hmm. of knowledge um so like you mentioned like you know you mentioned like the the Dogon people, who have, um, you know, an understanding of serious um, A and serious B, um, how would they be able to obtain that knowledge if not through like this repertoire of knowledge of these this pre-scientific? Because the only way we have mm-hmm. scientific knowledge is through magic itself, um, and right. the same way that we have like an intuitive understanding. For example, like in alchemy, you know, like the the notion of the symbol for um, sulfur which you know is a reactive chemical that burns um, is also used for um, to symbolize like hell for example you know it's like this mm-hmm. it's this stratiated like symbolic hierarchy but it, it's like it, it makes
0: sense it's it has a logical structure right exactly and that's that's really the the big problem of magic is its consistency and its universality of of representing some sort of pre-thought because what magic sort of proves every time is that it always comes before some sort of scientific understanding like for instance the Dogon tribe were the first to understand what a white dwarf was serious b and to understand that there's this little thing that weighs a ton that is being hidden by a big shiny thing They somehow had a complete scientific understanding of these things through purely magical thought, which is quite incredible when you think about it. But the problem becomes, how do we engage with these magical systems? And that's where Deleuze and Guattari really come in with their problem of ethnography. The problem with sociology, anthropology, ethnography is when Westerners go to these tribes they tend to inherently colonize and primitivize the tribes in a way that makes it intranslatable what's going on when they're thinking magically and you're thinking analytically. Like, for instance, Deleuze and Guattari bring up a great example of a tribe in which, you know, a bunch of people come and basically psychically colonize the minds of these people who don't think in terms of Oedipus, don't think in terms of psychotherapy. And so there's a tribesman who is having a really hard time and he goes to, you know, the priest And the priest says, all, you know, what you should do is there's this sympathetic connection to your grandfather tooth. You know, this is your grandfather tooth. If you pull that tooth out and you bury it here, you know, these issues will go away. And that works, right? And that only works within the synchronic understanding of a magical system as it is localized in that tradition. But to the psychotherapist or to the, uh, to the westerner, this is seen as inherently primitive and inherently unintellectual, right? Because it does not match our mindset that is becoming increasingly taken to colonize the mindsets of other people to, as Lewis and rightfully point out, to inject Oedipus as the psychoanalytic framework of our complete understanding of the human itself and not just the Western archetypal traditions of Oedipus, right? And so what we have Marcel Mauss doing here is what I think Deleuze and Guattari are really trying to do with their ethnography too, which is to approach it with schizoanalysis, not with Western logocentrism. In other words, to understand the sympathetic capacities between different magical systems to get to a core truth as to what magic is as a thing, as a substance, and not just a speculative idea that can be discarded at will, judging on your own prejudices towards certain peoples and certain certain traditions
1: yeah no and i i think that this gets to you know a lot of people will kind of like bring up at least try to create like some sort of relativism here and point out that um oh well if you, there is no universal way to kind of stitch all of these different ways of thinking then by definition or or even not 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 necessarily that but that the colonizing the colonizing mind has to see the has to see um, these ways of thinking as primitive because it's moving, you know, in a, in a Hegelian sense, it's moving through these uh, epochs of thinking um, to get to uh, the absolute, to kind of to get to the end of history. Um, and in a way, like you mentioned, mouse and Deleuze and Guattari are not doing that. They're kind of yeah, like these these ways of thinking are self-referential and enclosed. And they make sense within their own structures. Um, and in a way, it makes more sense to think of them as um, these self-enclosed little islands of thought. Um, but they still refer, they, they, they can still connect, um, like, you know, in, in the notion of the rhizome, they can still connect to other, um, to other parts of the rhizome. They, they, still, they still very much are part of a network as a whole.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I think this points to the major problem of Western thought when it comes to understanding magic, which is that Western thought has has had a remarkable prejudice in that they can cons- we consider uh, superstition to be worthless if not harmful, right? We we in our uh, you know uh, Socratic thinking, we are taught to basically rid ourselves of superstition as something that's unimportant at best and harmful to us at the least. Now, the problem is that leaves out a complete understanding of what magic is, which is something that is created by, by public group superstition. It's created through our collective superstitions, through our collective ideas that are then the basis for a magical system to be manipulated. And Mauss even says in the first place, magic and magical rights as a whole are traditional facts. Actions which are never repeated cannot be called magical. If the whole community does not believe in the efficacy of a group of actions, they cannot be magical. The form of the ritual is an eminently transmissible, and this is sanctioned by public opinion. It follows from this that strictly individual actions, such as the private superstitions of gamblers, cannot be called magical. But notice the group superstitions of a society are in fact magical. They constitute what magic is and this this goes to the universal substance of you know there's they're acting on something but there's always this transmissibility that is inherently uh created by the collective beliefs and faiths and superstitions of the localized society that is using the magic basically what he's saying is that individual actions and superstitions are not magical but what is magical are collective superstitions. And this is why the West has such a hard time with understanding what magic is because of the inherent phalagocentric uh, bias towards superstition as something, like I said, either useless or harmful. But in fact, they are the very basis for what a magical system is at any localized point. We have a universal substance being localized into synchronic systems of language, symbols, tradition, and peoples. Yeah,
1: I I want to say this kind of reminds me. I'm not I'm not a, like La Ruelle expert at all, but it's kind of like this you know notion of like like even like even like La Ruel kind of criticizes like Deleuze and Guattari from still for still being kind of like in this like philosophical tradition. But it's almost like if you truly think of like imminence as like as this fractal or like this reality as like this f- fracturing fractal of like repeating patterns um and there's like no i don't want to say that there's no sense to it or that there's no logic but it's almost like you have to take these things on their own terms you can't you can't overextend the faculties of one realm to another to such a degree that you you universalize it as like you universalize in a reductive manner and i think that's what is problematic in terms of colonial thought which is that it reduces or it tries to erase, um, for example, like the importance of ritual or tradition um, in a lot of these societies. And, it's, and you can't, uh, you know, Mouse brings up how um, magic by, by its very nature, it's, it has to be directly connected to these rituals uh, or to ritualization. And, you know, it's it's like, what, why would that be the case if not, if magic is not like this mimetic, this fundamental mimetic
0: aspect of reality? It's non-reducible. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting when we bring up the Dogon tribe because the Dogon t- tribe to me represent, uh, represents the big uh, problem of the West encountering Magic, in which it inherently reduces it to primitive, you know, quote unquote, primitive methods and techniques, when in reality, uh, the sort of over abstraction and the over analysis of magical systems degrades them of their systemic functionality within that locus, right? So when we fail to appreciate what magical thinking is, which is a pure level of human thought, a pre thought. Instead, we, we take magical thinking to be a uh, remedial way of thinking that has to be done away with, which is the inherent problem of the West with the Dogon tribe, who the West will never be able to explain to you or to me or to anyone else, or to the Dogon people, how they were able to empirically understand uh, the Sirius stars. They know why they understand it and they know it through intuition, and the West could never come up with a analytical explanation for how that knowledge would have got to them, because it's a purely magical process that got them there.
1: Yeah, it's a purely, um, like, non-analytical, non-formalized system of of knowledge. And that's not to, I mean, again, that, that's also not to say, like, the West's emphasis on, uh, like, reason or anything like that is, like, problematic in itself. I, like, I think what we keep... Um, coming back to it's the, the problematic aspect is that like you mentioned it's trying to treat it treat it as a, as a symptom you know of, or an ailment of something that we need to move past um mm-hmm. as opposed to you know something something by something that still can contribute to your um uh, you know oh, what would i want to call them like social cultural um epistemic um uh, what is it called? The repertoire of tools.
0: Right. And, and it also limits the ability for uh, humans to understand evolution and the evolution of ourselves, right? Because this is the key to the first step in the evolution of human thought and where it came from. And at this point, you know, the West kind of wants to sever that off and you know, sort of just say that language has come, you know, intuitively, or it's just something that develops through evolution, yet it doesn't quite want to understand how that evolution functions and the importance and depth of magical thinking, as compared to what we'll call Western reason, which happens to be a little, you know, in my own opinion, and I think many opinions, a little overly rational, or rational in a way that is almost imprisoning to human perception,
1: yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's you know, it's this whole idea of like, at least for like some branches of like genera- generative uh, anthropology, where it's like, you know, things of like first you get language through like speech acts or something like that, like through ostensive uh, gesturing or signals. And my, my intuition would be that it just can't be the case because you know other creatures are able of. Are able to perform ostensive acts. For example, like elephants have like rudimentary notions of uh, pointing to something. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not it's not uniquely human. Um, what is uniquely human is the ability to kind of um, point to something using some sort of signifier, or something that's outside of the the speech act, and somehow still make it refer to something. Um, that the other, in this case, another person um, has a unique understanding of, for example, I can tell, I can tell you that something is red and you have an under, like you don't have, you, you have an understanding of red through, obviously through language, but it's almost like, you know, I want to sound corny here, but it's just like, you know, language is magic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, language is inherently magical and mouse brings that up that, uh, the speaking and writing arts are steeped in magic. You know, he talks about how magic is first used with hunting and fishing and things of that nature. But, you know, speaking, drama, all of these things are highly magical acts um, that that still have this great tradition even in these so-called advanced Western societies. And I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up here. Um, but what we're going to talk about next time in part two is really... How the Western world has had this revival in magic and how the West under magic in a more consummate way throughout the 20th century. Uh, And that way we're going to have to talk about sacrifice and we're going to have to talk about what mouse calls the evil spell type of magic.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to go over that and, you know, bring up a lot of, a lot of things in regards to our particular circles regarding you know, like mimesis and things, things like that, and I and, and how it invo- how it involves like, you know, because you know our podcast. The reason why we started is to kind of go against these counter, uh, counter, uh, counter movements of like psyops and being controlled by societies of control. And it's, you know, if these institutions of control have an understanding, because they do. That I mean, unlike, you know, the average person, they do read. Plato they do read you know these, these texts they have an understanding of magic they you know like um you know the CIA you know they they have they have documentation that they understand
0: all of this yeah they've they've researched a lot of these so-called magical experiences and use them to their advantage which is what I talk about too when we say magic is something that just simply exists in this veil in this background you know otherwise the cia wouldn't spend you know billions of dollars to train coordinate remote viewers or you know psychics or all these things if there wasn't some sort of deeper instrumentality to what magical action really is and so next time i think we're really gonna dive into the implications for magic um in the 20th century and also the implications in uh modern western society with how magic is used and how it's interpreted under these frameworks
1: awesome well uh i think we'll just cut it off there um if you like what you heard definitely like subscribe and follow us uh definitely try uh joining us on patreon uh all of your guys' support you know it really does help us out and it really does help us produce content like this so if you definitely enjoyed listening to this Uh, consider joining us on Patreon. Um, Anything helps, really. Um, And, well, that's all I really have. Uh,
0: Thanks again, Young. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You too, buddy. See you soon.